Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to the doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to the doctor. Well, now let us return to the matter that's before us, which is this uh, great and important statement, which is found in the ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And I'd better read again from verse 19 to verse 24. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O men, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Very well. Let me remind you what we've been doing. Here this objection is put forward to the reasoning which the apostle had employed from the beginning of verse 6, but in particular to the reason that he had implied from verse 14 to verse 18. The question is, very well then, if this is something God does and he's all-powerful in his sovereign will, how can he blame anybody for not believing? If it is entirely God's action, how can he with justice condemn anybody? Why doth he yet find fault? Now, the apostle's reply takes this form. He first of all rebukes the questioner for ever putting such a question. Nay, but, O men, what thou that repliest against God? Apart from what we say, we must always remember that when we are speaking about God, we must be very careful. Whatever we may be saying, we must never speak about God in any respect, as we would speak about a man. We must never speak about anything God has said or anything God has done in the same way as we speak about anything that man may have said or man may have done. We must always remember that we are considering something that the almighty and everlasting God has said or done. And that means that our whole spirit should conform. We should humble ourselves. We should lie in the dust. Or as we find it was indicated to Moses and to Joshua, here is the commandment. Take off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. We must never approach any teaching of the Bible, any doctrine of the Bible, except in that spirit of humility and of reverence and of a childlike spirit which is ready to learn. Confident opinions, assured notions have no place in the study of the Scripture. 
and anybody who comes with such prejudices, still more with passion or with bad temper, might as well go out immediately. Not only will you not learn, but your attempt to learn will do you more harm than good. And you may find coming upon yourself the woe of God. Who art thou, O men, that repliest against God? I repeat that because it's no use going on with this discussion unless our spirit is right, unless we realize exactly what we are doing. We are not here to bandy opinions. We are here to consider the message of the truth of God. Then, having said that, you see, he goes on and shows, as we saw last Friday, the monstrous position of the thing formed, the plastic material, asking a question of the one who's formed it into a shape. The thing is ridiculous. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? He ridicules the whole thing. If we only saw ourselves as we really are, Oh, how much less would we talk, and how less frequently would we express our confident, arrogant opinions. We'd put our hands upon our mouths, as Job did, and wonder at ourselves, at our temerity and folly in venturing to speak as we do about these sacred things. But then he goes on to put it still more plainly. He says now quite explicitly that the relationship between God and fallen humanity is this. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? Now then, I mustn't keep you with this, but it means this, we saw you remember. This is God's relationship to fallen humanity. It's not referring to creation at the beginning. Here is this mass of perdition, this lump of fallen humanity. And what the apostle is saying is this, that God has a right to do as he likes with it. It all deserves to be damned. But God has chosen to save some out of some of it to make vessels unto honor, and of the rest to make vessels to dishonor. Why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? He has a right because he is God, and because the whole world lieth guilty before him. Now then, that is the point at which we've arrived so far, and I ended by giving you some reasons to show why modern men in particular is the very last who should cavil at this kind of teaching. He is generally a fatalist or a determinist, a Freudian or something like that. He's the very last who should cavil, but I needn't have said that. This is more than sufficient in and of itself. Well, now we proceed with his argument because he goes on in verses 22 and 23 to do something further. Now, in 20b and 21, he has been asserting, as I've shown you, God's right to do this. But in verses 22 and 23, he gives us God's reason for doing this. Now, there was no need for this. We have no right to ask for reasons. We have no claim upon God at all. We deserve nothing but punishment and hell. If anybody thinks that he or she does deserve anything else, well, all I say is you don't know God, and you don't know yourself either. The attitude taken up by all who've had any glimpse of God, as we read in the Bible, is that with Isaiah they feel that they're men of unclean lips. They fall down in utter hopelessness and helplessness. We've no right to ask for any reason, 
But God, in his infinite kindness and condescension, stoops to our weakness and gives us reasons. And here the apostle does that very thing. Now, uh, he puts it in rather an odd way. There's a bit of a difficulty about these two verses, because the apostle does something which he does now and again, and I very nearly said, thank God that he does. He starts off a sentence and doesn't finish it. There's nothing wrong in that, as long as the meaning is plain. You notice he starts off with a condition. Here, it, I read the authorized, it says, what if God? Well, now, there's no what in the original. He said, if God willing. In other words, he starts with a condition. And you expect that there'll be a sort of conclusion to it, but he never gives us the conclusion. What if? Then, well, you say, there's a reply to that, but he doesn't give us the reply. In other words, the reply is conveyed, as it were, by the very form in which he puts the question. So it could be taken something like this. If God has done this, what can men reply against it? That's what he's really saying. And sometimes you can make a question like that more dramatic by not supplying the answer. You start with your condition, but you don't supply the conclusion. And so it's in a still more arresting manner before you. What he's saying is, what objection can there be to that? Now then, let's look exactly at his statement and what he's saying. Taking the two verses together, the apostle is making this statement, that the reason for God's action in hardening some and in punishing others, uh, in, in hardening some and punishing them, and in showing mercy and compassion to others and saving them, is that his own glory and his own being might be made known and might be manifested. And he says that uh, both aspects of God's action do that and that they both do it at the same time. Now there's the general statement. But you see, he divides it up into two. In verse uh, 22, we have the manifestation of God's wrath. In verse 23, we have the manifestation of God's mercy. Well, now let's look at this statement. It's the most important one. Verse 22 is the wrath aspect of this. And he starts off by saying, what if God willing to show his wrath? Now, this word willing is um, really not a good translation here. It uh, really means wishing. And it's, it's even stronger than that. Uh, it could be translated, what if God inclined? And then even that isn't strong enough, because it means a deep and a strong desire. Now that's the real translation of the word willing. Now, a German commentator of the last century, I think, has put this very well. He's paraphrased it by putting it like this. Notwithstanding that his holy will disposes him not to leave unmanifested his wrath and his power. 
Now that's a very good way of putting it. It's a paraphrase, but it does bring out the meaning. Notwithstanding that his holy will disposes him, and it disposes him very strongly, it is the whole of his nature that disposes him to this. Now that's exactly what the apostle is saying. God, with this whole disposal or disposition of his nature to do this, nevertheless. Now let's bear that in mind, therefore. Now, the Apostle is asserting, therefore, that everything in God, because he is God, because of his holy nature, because of his just and righteous and holy character, everything is in God, hates sin. Sin and God are eternal opposites. And with all the intensity of his being, God abhors sin and he hates it and desires to punish it. That is something that is of necessity true about God. And uh, the Apostle says that uh, in punishing sin, therefore God shows forth these aspects of his own being and character, or if you prefer it, he displays these attributes of his own eternal and glorious being. It is in punishing sin and bringing destruction upon those who are sinners finally that God, he says, has made known and does make known his wrath and the power of his wrath. Now, this is something, of course, that we see constantly as we read the Bible. It's in the Old Testament and in the New. The Apostle has already given us one very striking example of that in the case of Pharaoh, which he quoted in the 17th verse. God, in handling Pharaoh in the way that he did, as the Apostle has told us there, uh, the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Very well, he's saying that same thing once more. That God's reason for doing this is that he might display, give this manifestation, this clear demonstration, not only of his wrath against sin and his utter abhorrence of it and how it can't exist in the presence of God, but the power of this wrath and his might and his majesty and his greatness and his glory. Well, of course, that's only one illustration of it. And what the Apostle is saying is that in every manifestation of God's wrath upon sin, God is making known his attitude towards sin, his power to punish it, and thereby this fuller manifestation of the glory and the majesty of his person. Now, what you and I sometimes tend, I think, to forget is this. That this aspect of the character and the being of God would never have been known if he did not punish sin. It is by punishing sin that God makes this known. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known? Now, this is very important, therefore. You see, the Apostle is facing this whole problem from the standpoint of the being and the person 
and the attributes of God's character. And half other troubles, I believe, arise as we are considering this kind of doctrine, that we start with ourselves and we end with ourselves and look at ourselves, consider God. The truth is that because God is God and because God is what he is, I say it with reverence, there is certain things that God must do. And one of them is he must punish sin. God would not be God if he did not punish sin. His very nature is such that he must. It's the compulsion of his own nature. And what the apostle says therefore is that God in punishing sin lets us know this about his nature, about his being, and about his attributes. The wrath of God against sin, as this apostle has reminded us in the 17th verse of the first chapter of this great epistle, is already something that has already been revealed. Do you remember? We came across it in the 18th verse. For the wrath of God is, has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The ultimate trouble with people who don't believe in the doctrine of the wrath of God is this, that they don't believe the biblical revelation of God. They've got a God of their own creating. You will generally find that people who reject the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God also reject the biblical doctrine of redemption and of salvation. They're quite consistent. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, there's no real need for the sacrifice on Calvary's hill. It would never have happened. So you see, it is important we should view all these things in the light of the great doctrine of God himself. Very well, says the apostle, here is one thing then. God has revealed this wrath. He's he does so in order that he may give us this knowledge concerning himself and his eternal being. Now, you notice that he puts it like this. God willing to show his wrath and to make, known his, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. The wrath of God, he says, is shown to the vessels of wrath. What does that mean? Well, it's just a term that which is used very commonly in the scripture. It means an instrument uh, through which God shows his wrath. Sometimes the expression is used, children of wrath. The apostle says to the, to the uh, Ephesians, among whom we all had our conversation in time past, he says, when we walked according to the lusts of earth, the flesh fulfilling the desires of the body and of the mind, and we're all the children of wrath, even as others. It's the same, same kind of idea. We are, he says these are vessels of wrath. They are the instruments or the utensils, as it were, whom God uses to show this. That's the connotation. But the really interesting word here is the word fitted. Now then, let's look at this word. Vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction. And I want to show you the real significance and importance of this word. The right translation here again, or at least the full translation is this. The vessels of wrath having been fitted. 
or if you prefer it, the vessels of wrath, ripe for, ripe for destruction. Or still more loosely, you could say the vessels of wrath, the being ready for destruction. Now, the significance is this, that the apostle does not say that it is God who has fitted them for this. All he says that they have been fitted for destruction. He doesn't tell us who's fitted them for destruction. Why do I make a point of that? Well, for this reason. In the 23rd verse, when you come to the vessels of mercy, what you read is, which he had afore prepared unto glory, namely God. In other words, God has not prepared the vessels of wrath to destruction, but he has prepared the vessels of mercy unto the glory, which you see puts it absolutely into line with what we've seen in our previous exposition. God never created a sinner. God didn't create this lump of fallen humanity. God created men perfect in his own image and likeness. Yes, he created the whole world perfect. It's man who fits himself for destruction, not God. And it's most interesting. Now the apostle brings that out here. The vessels of wrath fitted, having been fitted to. What's fitted them to it? Well, what's fitted them to it is their own sin. First of all, the fall of men, then their own sin and their own disobedience. And on top of that, if you like, the hardening process, which we've already considered in the case of Pharaoh. Men's failure to react to the light and the grace of God's love and thereby become still more sinful. And that fits him still more for destruction than he was already fitted. But the, the serious and the important thing is this, that it is made quite clear that they are not fitted to destruction by God. They are fit for destruction, they are ripe for it. But that is entirely as the result of men's sin and disobedience and his rebellion against God. And you notice that what they are fitted for is nothing short of destruction. What the same apostle calls in 2 Thessalonians 1, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. We needn't go into that tonight. It means perdition. It means eternal banishment out of the presence of God and his glory and the enjoyment of his being forever. Destruction. Very well, he says that God uh, has uh, shown and has made known and has manifested this aspect of his character in connection with these vessels of wrath that have become fit for nothing but that destruction. It's a tremendous statement, this. But then he goes on to say another most interesting thing here. You notice it. That though God would have been fully justified in consigning to that destruction the whole of fallen humanity, and though he would have been justified in doing it at once and immediately and without any delay at all, actually he hasn't done that. What has he done? Well, he has endured, he says, with much long-suffering these vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Now, what's the meaning of this? Well, I believe that he's again uh, carrying in his mind the case of Pharaoh, which he's already considered, as I've reminded you, in verse 17. 
God knew beforehand exactly what Pharaoh was going to do and announced, you remember, to Moses that he was going to harden his heart. God didn't immediately destroy Pharaoh. No, he endured him. He endured his rebellion, his arrogance, his disobedience. He endured it for some time, sent Moses and Aaron back to him to plead with him, and so on. And it was only after a period that he finally destroyed him and his hosts in the Red Sea. Well now, the Apostle says this is a general principle. In God's dealing with the whole of fallen humanity. And here is a question I'm sure that we've all often raised and have often considered or argued with people. The question can be put like this. Why does God tolerate the world at all? Why didn't God destroy the whole of humanity the moment Adam sinned? Why does God tolerate so much evil and godlessness in this present world? Christian people have often felt like asking that question. You'll often find the psalmist asking that question. The psalmist can't understand God. Why does he tolerate this? Why doesn't he arise? Why, why doesn't he destroy his enemies? He, he's in difficulties. And many, I say, have often been in this very difficulty. Well, now, that's the very question that the apostle, I think, is putting before us here. And it's very good that we should consider it. Because it's a question that not only comes sometimes into the minds of Christian people, as that second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, reminded us at the beginning, the scoffers, the unbelievers, are very fond of putting this question. They come forward and they say, Are oh, you people pr preach that there is a great God who is over all and that he's a judge and that he's going to judge the world in righteousness. You say that he judged it once at the flood and that he's going to judge it again. But they say, where is the promise of his coming? Yes, and nothing seems to be happening. Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They say, you Christian preachers, you've been saying that this Jesus of yours has risen from the dead, he's ascended to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, and that he's only waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool, and that he's going to come back and judge the world in righteousness, destroy his enemies, the devil and hell included, and set up his glorious kingdom. But, they say, when's it going to happen? You've been saying that for years now, and nothing's happening. They were saying that in the first century. And you and I are in the 20th century. And there are many people whose faith is shaken by this kind of question that is put by the scoffers. Now, that's the question, you remember, that Peter answers there in that third chapter of his second epistle, and particularly in verse 9, which I always feel is a very interesting commentary on this verse that we're looking at together now, this 22nd verse of the ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Let me read to you then the ninth verse of 2 Peter 3. His reply is that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but take verse 8 before it. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That's important, but listen. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, or to youward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now then, bear that in your minds. Take also with that the statement that we already met when we were doing the second chapter in the fourth verse. 
which reads like this. This is the epistle to the Romans, chapter 2, verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now, it's a long time ago we discussed that, but we went into it very thoroughly. And it's important we should bear in mind the conclusions we arrived at at that point. Now, here is the question. Why does God tolerate evil men for so long? Why doesn't he, if he is holy, as you say? Why doesn't he destroy them immediately? Well, now, here are the answers. One, it is because of his long-suffering, his compassion. This is a doctrine that perplexes some people, so let me give you some further evidence. Let me take you back to the book of Ezekiel. And first of all, we go to chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, verses 23 and 32. Here is verse 23 in Ezekiel 18. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord? And not that he should return from his ways and live? Then verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. And then go to the 33rd chapter of that same prophet, Ezekiel. And here it is in verse 11. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Now take those statements with the statement in Romans 2, for the statement we've got before us and the statement in 2 Peter 3, 9. What do they mean? Well, what they mean is this, that God has compassion, that God has long-suffering. God has no pleasure in the death of the ungodly. God has no desire for the will of the ungodly. He has no pleasure in it. That is perfectly plain and clear. It's explicit in the three quotations which I have given you from Ezekiel, and it's there equally plain and explicit in 2 Peter 3, 9. Well, how do you reconcile that, says somebody, with the teaching which we have here in Romans 9? And the answer must be this. Those other verses concentrate on what God desires, or what gives God pleasure. But here in Romans 9, we are teaching with what God has willed in the sense of decreeing. God as God cannot have any pleasure in the death of a sinner. He can't have pleasure in a sinner at all. The whole notion of sin is displeasing to God. He has no pleasure in that. He has no desire for that. So it is not the desire of God that any should perish. Indeed, it is the desire of God that all should come to repentance. But it is not God's will that all should come to repentance. 
Because it is God's desire that all should come to repentance, God has ordained that the gospel should be preached to all, and that all men everywhere should be commended to repent and to believe the gospel. The free offer of salvation is to be made to everybody. That is the expression of God's desire. But here in Romans 9, what we are being told is this. Why does anybody believe at all? God's desire that men should be saved does not save anybody. It is God's will and determination that saves. And what we are told about that is that God has only willed and determined to save some. But this is most important. God, in showing this long-suffering and in enduring, as we are told, enduring the, the habits and the practices and the arrogance and the violence of unbelievers whom he could have destroyed in a flash, in enduring them, God is showing that he has no pleasure in what they are, no pleasure in destroying them. He's allowing them to go on, as it were, in order that they might listen to this gospel. That's God's desire. That is God's pleasure. But it doesn't save them. His long-suffering and patience with Pharaoh didn't change Pharaoh. Our Lord's patience and long-suffering with Judas didn't change him. Our Lord, uh, God's long-suffering with this world in which we live, with the whole human race, is not bringing it to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what a demonstration it is of the long-suffering and the patience of God. We'd never know anything about the long-suffering and the patience of God if he didn't withhold his wrath. You see, the, this, the verse is really saying this. God, whose whole being urges him to punish sin, held back that urge as it were, in order that he might show this long-suffering, this endurance, this patience with sinful men. That's exactly what the statement is saying. So that is his first reason for enduring with much long-suffering the evil that is in the world. Now I do trust that this is really of some help to you. Haven't you often contemplated this question? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he deal with it? Here's part of the answer. Not willing that any should perish, doesn't desire that, but that all should come into repentance. Now draw that sharp distinction between what God God's pleasure is what God's desire is and what God's will is. God never desired that mankind should be lost. God never created men sinful, as I was saying last Friday. God never created sin. So it's not God's desire that any should perish. It gives him no ple pleasure that they do. Quite the reverse, say these scriptures. The desire and the pleasure are that men should turn and repent. But the fact of the matter is that none do. And so in order to save a single soul, God has got to decide and to determine to save some. That's exactly what this whole chapter is telling us. Very well, there's the first reason for this then. That he may show his long suffering and his compassion. He endured these vessels of wrath that were already ripe for destruction. He didn't wipe them off. He bore with them. And he's doing that with the whole of humanity until this present hour. But then there are further reasons. Here's a second. 
by enduring like this with long suffering these vessels of wrath, God is of course at the same time rendering them quite inexcusable. This to me is the most important argument. They're inexcusable, of course, because of the offer of his grace. Have you ever, I wonder, contemplated this question? Why was the Old Testament or the Old Dispensation period such a long one? Whatever your figures may be, whatever figures you accept, whether you accept those of Bishop, Archbishop Usher or not, it seems to have been at least 4,000 years. Why 4,000 years after the fall, before the birth of our Lord and Savior? Why that long interval? What's your answer to that question? Why do you think that God endured all that we read of in the Old Testament, and you can read of partly in the secular history of the nations of the world? Well, it seems to me there's only one answer. Mankind, from the beginning... has always been self-confident. That's one of the first results of the fall. Man's pride, pride of intellect, pride of understanding, pride in his own power, pride in what he can achieve. And man has always taken the view, as he does now, that he can save himself. See, these modern people who say that a man reads the New Testament, he likes the teaching of Jesus, decides he's going to follow him, that makes him a Christian and all is well. Very well. That's man's self-confidence. That's always been man's trouble. Man has always said that he could save himself if only we were told what to do. Well, very well, God told him what to do. He gave the law to the children of Israel. There it is in perfection. Others copied it. Not only that, he gave the Greeks full opportunity of producing their great philosophers, elaborating their great teachings, drawing their blueprints of their utopias. Here they are. They're going to put themselves in the whole world right. Well, now, God gave them a thorough opportunity to do it. If he'd stopped it at the beginning, they'd have said, oh, but you didn't give us a chance. You only gave us a year. If you'd given us ten years, we'd have done it. And then the, if he'd given them ten, they'd have said, if you'd given us a hundred, what's a hundred years? If, then it would have been a thousand. Well, he gave them four thousand. You see, they have no excuse left. God gave the ancient world a full opportunity. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, it was when the world by wisdom knew not God that it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believed. Greece and Rome and every other civilization had exhausted itself and had ended in failure. And then God sent his son. And now it's exactly the same in explanation of the, the new dispensation in which you and I live. Why all this long interval? Well, there's only one answer. God is going to render condemned humanity utterly speechless at the end. They'll say, but if only we'd heard about it. But he says, you have heard about it. The gospel has been preached now for nearly 2,000 years. The world is without excuse. Any man who goes to hell goes to hell because he's refusing the way of salvation that's offered him. Every mouth shall be stopped. Nobody will be able to say a word. God's long-suffering giving an opportunity for men and women to hear the message, renders them finally, I say, completely and totally, totally inexcusable. Don't argue with, people, with unbelievers about election and predestination. You argue with them about this. Why don't they believe the gospel? That's the thing to argue with them about. 
Why don't they believe the gospel? That's the problem for them. Why do they continue in sin? Why do they not know that their sins are forgiven? Why have they not been born again? Why not? Here is the offer. Hold them face to face with that. Render them inexcusable. And thirdly and lastly this evening, God's reason for enduring with much long suffering. These vessels of wrath that are already ripe for destruction is that when the time of their punishment does come, it is made yet and still more striking. Now, we've already seen this in the case of Pharaoh in verse 17. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth, which we interpreted, you remember, like this. That if God had destroyed Pharaoh and his hosts at the first refusal, well, we wouldn't have had those twelve miracles which we have. And it is through them that God showed his power, his overwhelming power, that the whole world spoke about then and has been speaking about ever since. And it was only when finally Pharaoh and his chariots and his hosts were drowned and consumed in the Red Sea that the greatness of God's might and glory was rarely shown. How he brought out this mere handful, as it were, of defenseless people and destroyed this mighty dictator's army and all his hosts. When God does it, it's unmistakable. Because, you see, God has allowed these scoffers to say, where's the promise of his coming? And that's the sort of thing they're saying at the present time. They say there isn't a God at all. If there is a God, he wouldn't endure all this. If he could stop it, he would stop it. If he could punish, he would punish. They say there is no God. God allows them to say it all. And when they seem to have proved their case to the hilt, and when the whole world has become godless and irreligious, and is there as it was in the time when our Lord came on this earth in a sense steeped in iniquity and in foulness, God will arise. And the coming will be still more wonderful and glorious. When he is revealed, as Paul puts it there in Second Thessalonians, with all the brightness of his glory, it will, I say, be still more wonderful and glorious for the very reason that it has been delayed. Let me read the words to you that we may go home with this thought in our minds. He says, We ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. When he comes, the destruction will be correspondingly more awful than ever when kings and others, as we are told in Revelation 6, 
He shall fall down and cry to the rocks and the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb and the terror of his coming. Well, there are at any rate three reasons why God, though the whole of his being urges him to punish the sinner, withholds that urge. There is a fourth reason, and that's the one that's given in verse 23, which, God willing, we will proceed to consider next Friday evening. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come before Thee. And O Lord, we thank Thee that we can come and turn unto Thee, knowing that we are Thy people. We come, O God, because we know that we are vessels of mercy. We realize we would not be considering these things if we were not vessels of mercy. And we can but humble ourselves before thee and bow in thy holy presence and be amazed that thou hast ever spared us. O God, receive our praise, our thanksgiving, our worship and our adoration. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the love of God the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.